to all the abundant nuclear, I don't have any power. I'm, I'm operating in the dark ages here. Why, well, why we, do you not have any power? I don't know. Uh, everything, we were on a Zoom pre-pod, and midway through, literally all my power went out. So, um, Oh, is that, I sure saw that. Happened. I thought that was you just adjusting the lighting. because you No, were, the, like, the very, power blew very, completely. Very... <laughs> and I'd, I'd, I've obviously been a professional. I'd kind of set myself up to to have really nice front lighting to, to make the best of my limited features. And and it all just went to pot when everything blew out. And I think I might have plugged too much stuff in. Is 43 things bad to have in one plug socket? No, yes. that's absolutely fine. Should I have Say turned 43 off... 43 or four or three? Four to 43. Should I have turned off the electric razor that I just keep running at all times, do you think? <laughs> what, you just think move, move your face towards it whenever you need to shave? Yeah, just sort of sort of lang languidly, just sort of lean into it, get it get a few, a, few, a few little brushes off and then, then come away. And I, I do have two kettles boiling continually. <laughs> and you, you know when you charge the batteries for power drills, you're not supposed to be running the power, power drills simultaneously. Are you telling me, that, Steve, you're in a house where currently there are no power drills in operation? That would be outrageous. That's not I, I prioritise talking to you before I just walk around the house firing off a drill so, in a kind of like menacing Wild West fashion. <laughs> <laughs> how how so, much I mean, battery do you have on your, on your computer currently? 91%. Right, but okay. as, keep, a, keep us posted on that. Just to be abundantly clear, I am very technically minded, as you all know. So I have looked at both fuse boxes and seen that all the things are pointing in the right direction. And now I think the only thing, that the, the only possible solution is I'll have to call an, ele an electrician because I've, I've sort of exhausted the, the intensive, deep-seated knowledge I have of these things. If they're all pointing in the right direction, there's no problem. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, man on fire, Steve Wyeth, man on wire, and Andy Hinchcliffe, man on! Uh, the food um, actually comes as a question today that's coming from Paul Knights. Dear Fleegy, Bingo, Drooper and Snorkel. My favourite was always Snorkel, so Chinch celebrates. I'm currently watching the Burnley against Palace game and enjoying Chinch's informative and balanced co-commentary as always. Thanks to this game being included in regular TV subscriptions rather than being an extra £15, we can both confirm that it is indeed taking place, while accepting that the previous West Brom against Burnley pay-per-view is still open to conspiracy theorists and Trump lawyers alike. As a Burnley fan, there had to be a reason for me switching on. My mind began to wonder as to whether Chinch got the opportunity to sample the delights of takeaways in the Turf Moor area. I've not lived in Burnley myself for nearly four decades now, but can confirm that there is a cracking chippy outside the ground just around the corner of the Bob Lord and Jimmy Mac stands. It is, or was, a regular pre-match haunt when I go to watch the Mighty Clarets with my eldest too. I cannot comment on whether there are any decent Chinese takeaways in the area though. Maybe Chinch needs to start advertising which grounds he's visiting in advance, and SPM listeners can recommend Chinese food for Chinch to try. It being a food and football podcast after all, all the best for Christmas and New Year. That's Paul Knights, who's from Woodlesford. Rory might have heard of it, he says. Yeah, I think I've heard of Woodlesford. That chippy is opposite the pub that has been renamed in yes. honour of Sean Deitch. Yeah. So rather than like the, the Prince of Wales, it's the Prince of Deitch or something. It's the and Royal we, Deitch. It's the, the Royal, Royal Deitch. Deitch. But also they've got him on the on the advertising hoarding. He's dressed as Henry VIII and it, it, it looks perfect, doesn't it? Yeah. So so rather than a rather than a sort of royal figure flapping in the wind in that sort of like shield type advertising you'd have outside of a pub, it's a picture of Deitch dressed as a Tudor. It's stupendous. If it's Henry VIII, then he's a Plantagenet. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> This is why we should get rid of him. <laughs> he's a forward-thinking, high-pressing Plantagenet. That's the, oh no, no, he's a counter-attacking, sit behind the ball, soak it up, and then break at them. That's kind of what Henry VIII did, wasn't it? Really, 
And as we all know about Henry VIII, 442 was non-negotiable. Yep. Um, so it's given me uh, an idea. Um, we are unable, clearly, to share food together. And many of you have commented on the fact that we're not doing a very good job of upholding that at least half of the podcast. So I recommend that if anybody has a, a haunt, takeaway or otherwise, close to the football ground that you frequent when you're allowed to, perhaps you could let us know. And each week, if we have enough, uh, we will be able to glory in those pre-match haunts that you frequent on a very regular basis. And then maybe Chinch could visit them en route as well. Or comedy takeaway names <laughs> as well. I, I do like when there's a play on words for a, a, a takeaway. You know, my place for a fish and chip shop. The Chinese near Anfield that's called You'll Never Walk Alone. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Yes, as long as there's no casual racism, perhaps that's okay as well. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, the football is, Chinch, well, you've got every right not to know what it is today, let alone... Uh, reveal to others what our subject is today. That's because we're talking about something that will be revealed in an apparently, although not at all truthfully, organic fashion as we make our way through our correspondence. What a tease! It also means less writing for me. Get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and our YouTube channel. I think I mentioned um, just a couple of episodes ago about how we'd received the most emails of any week in pod history. Well, like Carl Lewis in Tokyo 1991, that record didn't last long because along comes Mike Powell long jumping into the record books. I will attempt to get to the good ones about SPM 205, what makes a good game. Yes, we're getting so many now that they're not all good. Over the course of the next few weeks, dropping them in as we go. But the first of a few today comes from Chris Hill who was able to deal with both of the things we asked for your contributions on last week. The first of which is in response to the fact that Reims doesn't sound like Reims looks like on the page. Good morning, Alvin, Simon, Theodore and Dave. You continue to set a high bar in the football pod stakes and I always enjoy the conversations and indeed any deviations off topic. I live in Scotland, although I'm not Scottish and I fell foul of place name sounding nothing like it looks. When I first moved up here, I asked someone to pick up a customer in a place spelt and do it with me, everybody, M-I-L-N-G-A-V-I-E. I pronounced it as it looks, much to the amusement of everyone around me. Apparently I should have known it was pronounced Mulgai, not Milngavi. They also have a football team, so I feel they would fall into the category that we began last week. Any more suggestions, setpiece menu at gmail.com. In terms of great games, I would suggest the 2006 FA Cup final between Liverpool and West Ham, primarily on the basis of Steven Gerrard's performance, um, which included a brilliant assist, two goals, and the fact that the underdogs were minutes from pulling off an unexpected victory in a high-profile game that included own goals, flute goals, good goals, and possibly the most extraordinary last-minute thunder bastard ever scored. Keep up the good work. Uh, that's from Chris. Buffalo Mark Cole makes a similar point. Dear Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Excellent. That's oh, amazing. Like that. that is the like year that. of the four emperors. Uh, when the notion of a high-scoring match is used as criteria for a good game, don't you also have to factor in the order of the growls, he says. I think autocorrecting from goals. A 5-4 where the lead goes back and forth is not the same as when one races out to a lead and is caught by the opponent. Would the infamous Arsenal 4, Newcastle 4 be as well remembered if it had merely gone 1-0, 1-1, 2-1, etc.? To which Cameron Hill adds, in most sports, not just football, the comeback is generally a force for excitement and enjoyment. One team surges out in front with an almost insurmountable lead before their opponents re-emerge and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, either through a sudden but sustained period of brilliance or as a result of the leading team's complete collapse. But 
is this necessarily exciting? Surely if one side has been so dominant in the first act, most fans will switch off before things turn ugly. Then when that dominance completely falls away, there is the potential for schadenfreude. But equally, it can be incredibly frustrating to watch an apparently good team crumble so suddenly, especially if it happens frequently. There was a period a few seasons ago in Europe where 3-0 was the most dangerous lead to have in a game. So do comebacks make for exciting games? Your thoughts, gentlemen, on those initial points? It, de- it depends a bit on the nature of the comeback, I think. So I, I would say overall, if you have a 5-4 or a 4-3, the game is improved by being 4-3 from 1-1, 2-1, 2-2, 3-2, rather than being like 4-0, then 4-3 late on. And I would use as evidence the... Was it Southampton Villa? Yes. Recently. Where Southampton went yeah. 4... Were they 4-1 up? No, they four were 4-0 up. 4-0 up. Four nil yeah, up. Four nil up. And, and they ended up winning 4-3. And that I don't think that would meet the bar because that was just Southampton being much better than Villa for 88 minutes and then Villa storing twice in, in injury time to, to give the storyline a sheen of respectability. Uh, I think in the Arsenal-Newcastle case, where the, the underdog team overhauls the the lead when it's definitely three or more but probably four or more if they if they get back to parity or go on to win then it qualifies but I don't think making a game of it is late on is is quite the same so I would say a 4-3 is better when it's when it's sort of an even slugfest rather than a late kind of stirring let's get a bit of pride back I don't think that counts but if it's if it ends up four all the outcome kind of provides the drama. It's, it's a case of anticipation, isn't it? Sometimes a team can race into a three or four goal lead and you you know, well, 90% of the time, you know it's all over. But there are those rare occasions in which the, the scoreline doesn't reflect the, the balance of the game. So you just have that inkling that something spectacular can happen. And if the team that's, that's losing gets one back before half time that keeps you energised through the break. So I think, yeah, that's under certain circumstances, even a team being three or four nil up, you can still anticipate some drama. Mm. Surely it has to be three or four, because I, I remember doing a game at Villa Park where Villa were two nil up against Leeds, but you always kind of knew because Leeds were playing better, but just couldn't score. And Leeds did turn it around to win 3-2 with Kamar Roof scoring a, a last-minute winner. 3-2, it's clearly impressive. You come from two goals down. If you come from three or four down, four down, and even get a draw. That oh, really yeah. has to be more remarkable than coming back to win 3-2, isn't that it? Is, that is just maths, Chinch. You're absolutely right. Three it is maths. It is, is maths. You're absolutely right. It's numbers. Numbers going up and coming down. It's a numbers game. Don't tell Rory. Adam Bremner is back in touch. And for the second time this week, an email starts with this. Alvin, Theodore, Simon and Dave. <laughs> Would you genuinely two emails this week uh, thinking of us being chipmunk. who's the Dave by the way and not us who in Huge. the ch- chipmunk no but who is Dave is he one of the he's the chipmunk's, chipmunk's owner oh the chipmunk's owner right remember okay. that I own I don't you. I don't know I don't know if own is can you own is he handler lover <laughs> spiritual guide it's, it's I don't know starting to become less like me um, so that's how Adam begins this email I'll skip all the nice teas since you completely ignored them in my last email yes we did Adam we've only got so much time greetings from Manhattan the barbecue and hot dogs have been retired for the season but the Long Island property together with hot tub will make an appearance shortly he says dripping in hubris love the debate around dental work he says I thought it was quite ironic coming from a UK based podcast it may be the only mention of dentistry in the broad universe of pods released in the UK in 2020 
Authority. Here in the US, we all imagine your teeth looking like Austin Powers, um, whether you floss them or not. This is something that happened last week. Roy does not like the thought of any tooth hanging from its gums. So Can we not go through it again? Yes, we have to do it again, just for relevance so that people understand what Adam is talking about. So one, of George's, says... one of George's uh, teeth has come out now, oh, by right. the way. Oh, so it, there's, there is still... There is still a situation where there's two back to back, but w- but one of the the front ones has now given way, <laughs> and that ha- that's it. it. It was Apple Strudel, incidentally, that finished it off. Don't know whether that's a useful tip. Some musing says uh, Adam <laughs> on great games. He tries again. Uh, number one, absolutely needs to be framed in terms of whose perspective we are considering. Fans of one of the teams or a neutral observer. A regular fan versus an analyst or member of the press. The latter have seen a lot more games. And to be honest, a lot of the games that they have said are not great would have been truly enjoyed by regular fans who would have loved to have been there in person. Number two, in parallel, the viewing environment is critical. Watching in person at the game in the stands versus in the pub with friends versus at home, he says, question mark. And if you're not paying for your ticket and or are in the press box, you're going to have a very different view of what a great game is. And you don't need to be there in person. I have great memories of games in pubs with friends, not just soccer. The Yankees 1998 World Series uh, with Tino Martinez's Grand Slam in an Upper West Side bar was a memory that he creates. A lot of questions, not so many answers from Adam so far. Finally, he says, we all view football as a form of entertainment unless your team is playing and then it'd be, be more of a commitment. And like any good form of entertainment, we want a broader context. Feats of individual excellence, feats of stupidity, brain farts, errors, heroic feats, suspense and late plot twists, a winner who we can celebrate and a loser who we can boo and blame. In the end, is it a game that you'd say to your friends, remember when we saw dot dot dot, a game that you might watch on TV again? And let's be honest, if you're paying $15 for a beer, $8 for a hot dog in the pouring rain at Yankee Stadium to see a nil-nil draw and then taking a 60-minute subway trip home, then it will never be a great game. But boy, do I miss it, and I hope to be able to see mediocre crap games in person soon. Till the next time, keep on brushing and flossing, uh, says Adam Bremner. So close to Buffalo status, Adam, and then you go and make Rory angry, which disqualifies you completely. Uh, Meanwhile, this comes from Jim Blaney. Dear Colinoscopy and others, a factor that can raise a game to a good game is whether the game lives up to expectations. For example, on June the 11th, 2016, my son and I left Minneapolis for Chicago to try and see Argentina against Panama. Without tickets and without any certainty that Messi would play, he had suffered a back injury leading up to the Copa America tournament and had missed the first game of the tournament. We drove eight hours for the chance to see our favourite player in a competitive game. We arrived half an hour before kickoff, purchased nosebleed seats so that we could be one of the nearly 60,000 at Soldier Field, drifted down to unused seats behind the goal that Argentina would be attacking in the second half and hoped for a competitive match. Messi was on the bench to start the game. Chance of Messi, 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 by all hoping that he would be brought on. And then... There he was. Seeing him on the field would have been enough, but he turned the game into a great game by treating us to a hat-trick during the final 30 minutes. This elevated the experience such that the game exceeded all of our expectations. Exceeding expectations can move a regular game into the good or even great game category. That's from Jim Blaney. Extra point. And to put an exclamation point on the subject for now, Simon Trina says this on an email. FAO Ferris H. Smith R. YFS Hinchcliffe A. FAC CS EVE. All the qualifications. Didn't even mention the seven caps. I enjoyed the most recent podcast, by which I mean I was pleased that one of you agreed with one of my opinions. Like Rory, <laughs> I too think that the 2006 World Cup semi-finals one of the greatest games, which, as a fan of the German team, I'm sure that you'll agree, makes me ruddy, bloody, brave and sporting. This leads me to something that has occurred to me before, that five of West Germany's World Cup semi-finals count amongst the best games of all time. He says West Germany. He means West Germany and also Germany. Helped by the significance of the fixture, of course, but between them, they cover most of the criteria for a great match. 19 
1970, the game of the century. A stoppage mm -hmm. time equaliser with the lead changing hands three times in extra time, ending 4-3. 1982, two sides playing excellent football and matching each other. West Germany coming back from 3-1 down in extra time. An overhead kick, a massively controversial foul and a penalty shootout. 1990, again, both teams playing superbly. Neither side getting a clear advantage. Another penalty shootout and iconic moments, not least Gaza's tears. 2006, 118 minutes of absolute quality. Two dramatic and excellent goals. The bittersweet combination of heartbreak and pride. Inglorious defeat for the hosts. And 2014, not a game that stayed uncertain to the end, but incredible because of who was being hammered and how utterly unexpected it was. A combination of an excellent and a terrible performance with many of the memorable moments coming from people's reaction to the match. I think you will agree that when put together, these matches make up what the Germans call a Spannen Dischfeld Meisterschaft Hub Final Etz Chompfest. Cheers. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I should say a lot of people have referenced the Blizzard pod series on the greatest game, so we should obviously recommend that, shouldn't we? Particularly as it has uh, Jonathan Wilson on it. Um, a final contribution before we move on. It comes from Matthew McCarthy. Hello, gents. I started listening to your excellent pod a handful of episodes ago and worked my way back over the course of many weeks in my car to the inaugural episode. I've now caught up to the current offering. I'm an enthusiastic football fan and did play at the high level of co-ed B Division Recreation League in my native Canada until a partial ACL tear dashed my hopes of glory. I'll never forget one summer evening, locking eyes with a teammate who was taking a corner, running from my centre-back position and, like a rocket, heading a ball from outside the box into the top corner past a corpulent keeper who I think may have been smoking at the time. Glory days. I've never listened to every episode of any podcast, and despite reservations about listening to talk about old games and topics that were clearly in the past, I found them informative and entertaining. Rory's excellent insight on the pod and in his newsletter make me wonder if I really do need to subscribe to the NYT. Why buy the cow and all that? I still do though. Although in one early episode, Rory says something to the effect of, I don't know what everyone sees in Virgil van Dyke, which with the benefit of hindsight did make me laugh. And is the second podcast listener who has brought that up. Yeah, I think about that quite a lot. <laughs> there was a stretch, uh, says Matthew. Somewhere in, the no, no, well, in Rory's defence, it's because he's not as handsome as some people think. That must be it. That's what you, you well, don't, I just, you don't I just know think what everyone sees in Virgil van Dyke. Injury prone. <laughs> <laughs> There was a stretch, continues Matthew, somewhere in the early days when Stephen was doing a lot of chewing into the mic. It drove me crazy at first and I almost abandoned the pod, but now Ooh. it doesn't bother me at all. Steve, you should copyright this as an aversion therapy for misophonia. You'll make a fortune. Chinch's stories never disappoint. We don't get Sky over here, so I haven't seen Chinch in action except for the odd YouTube video. I understand he sometimes covers championship games, which I don't tend to watch, but since I'm a Newcastle supporter, it's only a matter of time before I'll be forced to. Being an NUFC supporter must be a diagnosable masochistic disorder. To complete the quadruple and to add to the food theme, Hugh's buttery delivery adds the professional cherry to the top of the SPM Sunday. I know I'm late to this, but I would like to offer a contribution to the bare content of the pod. My brother-in-law was a police officer who was stationed in northern Ontario. On a day off, he was startled off his couch by heavy knocking at his door. When he opened the inside door, he saw a huge black bear on his hind legs hammering on the outside screen door. Terrified, he slammed the door shut, grabbed his service revolver, yes, revolver, this was many years ago, ran out the back of the house and quietly made his way around to the front. He turned the corner to see the bear still pounding on the screen. He aimed the revolver and fired until it was empty. The bear turned and looked at him, uninjured, and ran away. Both the bear and my brother-in-law survived the encounter thanks to his terrible aim. Uh, finally, why is it on a podcast, do you feel the need to bleep curse words? Does this podcast get broadcast on radio pre-Watershed? Words like f***, and are never heard on your pod. 
it doesn't really bother me, but I do find it curious <laughs> as most podcasts will let rip when it comes to the swear words. Uh, thanks for the great work. I look forward to it every week. Yours, Matthew F- McCarthy. <laughs> that is brilliant. That is brilliant. I'm not sure that was a bear, though. That could have been a really hairy postman. <laughs> can, I, can I just pick up on two things? One, one is, what did the bear want? Like, trying to deliver some letters. The bear was clearly knocking on his door. The polite thing to do is to open the door to the bear and inquire as to how... He, there might have been some sort of bear emergency. He tried to shoot it. I know, that is an extraordinary... Or, that is or an he, extraordinary <laughs> reaction. I mean, or I don't he, like people knocking on my door unexpectedly, but that is going But if it's a St John's ambulance man, you're not going to open fire on him with a high-calibre <laughs> rifle, are you? It would have been like the, the old gold blend advert, like he's knocking on the door to ask for some sugar, they, they, they start a relationship... <laughs> They get married. It, I mean, who, this that story could have ended much more happily. Mm. Um, and the other thing that on the swearing, we could swear. We're all quite good at swearing. But I just, I just think that there's an element of it's just a bit cheap, isn't it? When you hear podcast swearing, it's a bit. You don't need to. Like part of the point of broadcasting is to be able to kind of express yourself without saying every five minutes. Yeah, too, too. Right, Rory. Well yeah. said. Well said. Um, the, guard, the, the guys on the Guardian Football Weekly—they just do it to sound edgy. They do. Mm. It, it, mm, mm, yeah. Don't need it. Uh, we have to also sign, like, sign a form. And um, I do enough administrative work for this podcast. I'm not going to be doing any more forms. It's a paperwork uh, issue. It's a paperwork issue. And also it's fun. Bleeps are funny. Matthew then says this. P.S. As a Newcastle supporter, and in that same vein, I had thought a good topic for a future episode would be, why do people like teams honestly after hours of listening what you've covered is a bit of a blur so if you've already done this please ignore well those of you who had been tracking every single word from every email thinking is that the subject they mentioned that they'll be talking about is that is that you had to wait until the very end because there it is from matthew mccarthy why do people like teams we're taking this one on for no other reason than to provide matthew with a number of what he clearly finds inexplicable bleeps throughout the podcast although on behalf of the editor can i ask that we find ways of avoiding using said word much like we did with atavelt for shit house perhaps we can find another former everton teammate of andy hinscliffe who sums up the sentiment perfectly Chinch, um, if you were to have a player that would best replace the word what would it be who would it be and we will use that name throughout um this this is this could be this could be really cruel, couldn't yes, it? Because whoever you. I say, I'm diminished, but and they're all professional players, aren't they? Sonetti. Frankie Sonetti. I think I must have told the story of Frankie Sonetti coming yeah. to Sheffield Wednesday, who scored an amazing goal, but was absolutely that word. So let's and it, and it, it works, it's got the same starting letter. <laughs> Why <laughs> do we support Sonetti teams? Thank you very much. So then we've spoken about second teams on the pod and the reasons for supporting the team that you do, but today we're asking specifically about what pleasures that you might derive from supporting a Sonetti team, because they will be different to those experienced by fans of clubs constantly made or broken by their seasonal trophy hall. And while the question has, of course, a lot of merit, does it also contain an element of self-deprecation that others may not necessarily be willing to entertain? You might think that my team is Sonetti. I certainly don't. Is that blind loyalty or laudable commitment? So then, why do people like Sonetti teams? And I would like to start with that definition of Sonetti, because... Yes. I might think that your team is Sonetti, but you won't think that your team is Sonetti unless you have that self-deprecating sense of humour that so many people do that rather revel in their team's inability to reach the heights that they expect of themselves. But there must be teams that are generally considered Sonetti, whether you support them or not. 
do you not need to have a sense of humor to even brand your own team a Sonetti team? Um, not if it's realistic and true. So, but how do we qualify? How do you get to, how, how do you determine a Sonetti team? What's, what qualities do you need to have to, forget the European Super League, let's start a Sonetti league. <laughs> Who would be in that? And why would they be in that? And what Sonetti today might not have been Sonetti 50 years ago. It's incredibly difficult. There's a real, there's a real problem of perspective here because Math- Matthew's a Newcastle fan and N- Newcastle aren't a team. I'm not doing Sonetti, I'm just going to say shit. Um, Newcastle aren't a team to support. It's going to take me con- forever. They're constantly in the <laughs> Premier League. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, I mean, they, they've spent, what, a couple of years outside the top flight in the last 15? You know, they're, they're basically a, got a massive fan base. They're a, they're a big team. They Historically, they'll win more games than they lose. They're one of the best 20 teams in the country. They're one of the 30 richest teams in the world. They're, they're not a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. But because of the, the amount we talk about, kind of failure, or the way we talk about failure in the Premier League and teams that are struggling, you'd, you'd think that Newcastle are a, that be, that being a Newcastle fan is, is some form of masochism. Tell that to like a, I don't know, like, an, like a York City fan. Well, here's my point, because it, it is the relevant levels of enjoyment. And we've spoken before, haven't we, about those teams who have often or traditionally been either yo-yo teams or teams that don't necessarily have designs beyond the bottom 10 of the Premier League, that actually they prefer to be in a championship season of winning. Yeah. And even to the extent um, that uh, one of the Latchams said that he preferred to always finish seventh in the championship and fall away in the last few weeks because you want to win as much as you can, but not face um, promotion for Bournemouth so that you always, always, always win. It's all about the levels of expectation based on the context of where your team sits. So for Newcastle, you might feel like a Sonetti team because you are never either reaching the heights that you think your fan base deserves or alternatively, the Premier League gives you a foundation for. But there are those who sit like York City much, much further down the football structure and they find themselves actually enjoying life way more because their enjoyment comes from smaller victories and lower expectations is it, is it the balance of joy and despair that that fans of other teams would reflect upon their opponents as being sinetti they would judge how can you put yourself through the experience of supporting that team because you you suffer more than you get enjoyment out of it is that is that the is that the constant because it, it's relative to, to the division you're in isn't it newcastle are a Sinetti team compared to Liverpool, but Wolves are a Sinetti team compared to Bayern Munich. And, and you can go down through, but people find the level of football that they enjoy engaging with, don't they? And then that team is judged within their division first and foremost. Well, so I think that the pat answer to this question is some something romantic about how you're, you're kind of assigned a team at birth and that through whatever process of osmosis from your from your mum or your dad or your brothers or your sisters or whatever you you are given that team and you stick with them through life and that's kind of that's how fans think to themselves and it's and it's basically true but I think it's worth thinking about because that that process must have like a mechanism behind it and what and what I think Steve might have hit on is maybe what the secret of that mechanism is which is that if you supported a team that genuinely just always lost like when Fort William do you remember the, the couple of years ago, Fort William kept losing. I think they, they lost something like forty-six games in a row. And if if there was a, if you happened to be taught by your by your parents that you were a fan of, yes, yeah, Sonetti FC, 
and in the first sort of five years of your sentient supporting life, Sanetti FC just lost. Like they just lost every game. They might they got like a draw occasionally. They were basically the derby team of Paul Jewell <laughs> continually for five, six years until you were like 12, 13. You'd probably not stick with football, would you, really, to be honest? You wouldn't, you wouldn't see the appeal because it would bring you literally no pleasure. The, the balance between joy and despair would be so tilted one way. You would at some point think... I suppose there's a possibility you might think that we, you might keep throwing good money after bad, I suppose, and start thinking, well, they don't, they don't, they'll have to win next week. They'll have to win next week. Getting on the forums, getting really angry, tweeting at the players, kind of railing against journalists for ignoring you, all that stuff. But I think most likely most people would, if the team was bad enough, would just drift away from the game because it brought them no pleasure at all. I think most teams, because of, because of the stratification of football, where... York City are playing at a level where they will win some games. Most teams probably offer their fans enough hope amid the despair that you never quite walk away from it. There's never enough reason to walk away. Even if you have a really, even if you have the derby season in the Premier League, you'll get relegated and you will win a few games and that will kind of reset the balance a little bit. So I suspect that Steve's right, that basically the reason people stick with bad teams is because... There's, they, there's enough in it to keep them engaged in a way that there wouldn't be if if they were really like genuinely abysmal. So it's just keeping fans the right side of the Sinetti tipping point. The Sinetti, the Sinetti tipping point. Point. Nice. <laughs> but uh, Matthew originally said in his, his um, email, didn't he, that he, he thinks that being a Newcastle supporter must be a diagnosable masochistic disorder. So given that he's used that term, there must be enough enjoyment on the other side of it for you to be able to put up with that masochistic disorder. I did some research prior to the podcast. You'll be horrified uh, to hear. And I, I got in touch with my friend Ollie, who is a Berry fan. How much time do you have on your hands, by the way? It's just an email. Send us an email back. That was it. Um, right. And he says this, and perhaps this touches on what we've, what we've said so far and might help us uh, and be informers for the rest of the podcast too. Uh, Ollie says this, my family going back generations are Berry Football Club supporters. We have been season ticket holders and shareholders for the last 80 years. I was taken in my pram at nine months old and the only club I could have supported was Berry FC. I was bought kits, taken to home and away games and have special time with my grandma and with my dad. Berry FC is my team. It doesn't matter if they are League Two or the Championship or, as of course now, non-existent. They are my team. My dad could have taken me 10 miles further down the road and I could now be a Manchester City fan, but he didn't and I'm not. I was in the Etihad when Sergio Aguero scored that goal against QPR to win the league. The elation and hysteria experienced on that day in that moment would have been similar to emotions that I have felt whilst watching the Shakers. I've seen four promotions, last-minute winners, last-minute equalisers. I've travelled from Luxembourg by car to Berry away at Scarborough and Mansfield, respectively, winning at both grounds. I've pitch-invaded three times whilst watching Berry, and the emotion required to jump the fence is as real for me as it was for those City fans in 2012. There is no difference between Ryan Lowe scoring the winner to seal promotion at Chesterfield to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scoring the winner in the camp now. In that moment, that second of realisation, the feeling is exactly the same. The trophy, level, global football relevance are different but as a fan they are my team I love them just like a Manchester City fan loves City an Everton fan loves Everton and a Wednesday fan loves Wednesday not entirely sure why he's chosen those three teams yeah. up the shakers uh, says Ollie so it speaks to the fact that the reason I asked Ollie is because Barry doesn't exist anymore so clearly he is still feeling those emotional connections based on their history and his history uh, with them and the joy that he feels is relevant to the occasion and the context. So this is where I think this is really interesting because 
that's absolutely right. So whatever team you support, there's always enough hope and joy and happy memories and all that stuff to keep you hooked. That's the drug. And the despair is what kind of makes the lows are what make the highs so sweet, which is it just the lows effectively, the Ryan lows are there, or Jamal low or Max low, are there to kind of Sid low, are there to like Wing heighten, <laughs> heighten the, um, the pleasure that you get when it all goes right. And that's, that, that is absolutely right. That works across the levels. You could maybe get into some sort of comparative debate about whether, you know, it's like winning the European Cup is that, is that a, a more profound pleasure to think that your team is is the best on the continent? But I don't think it's particularly relevant because I think it's to do with the context in which you exist. So yeah, for a Berry fan to, to see their team promoted probably means as much as for a Man United fan to see their team win the European Cup. It, that's one of those slightly pointless hypothetical debates that people have. But there's this week's but. Uh, <laughs> I think what's frame it. What, on the wall. What's really interesting is that. Do we think that the, that the way that football has gone, the fact that it's become so hierarchical, does that diminish that, that truth, that there is enough, there's enough kind of promise around the corner to keep you involved? I guess lower down, is, is it just the struggle to survive? Is it almost the fact that your team is still there? That's what kind of keeps you, that's what kind of keeps you in. But in the Premier League, in, in most of the major leagues in Europe, is it so stratified now that, that there are teams, there are maybe a dozen teams for whom existence kind of becomes a bit of a trudge because you know that you're, you're not going to win anything. You're not going to get into the Champions League. You've kind of hit, you, you, there is a glass ceiling and it's basically like seventh in the Premier League. And that's enough for a couple of years, but it's maybe not enough for, to keep you going long term. Or do you think that there's enough joy in the moment, like in, in, in each individual game, you can find enough joy from beating Manchester City that you don't worry about kind of the, the long-term joy of, you know, what, what has happened this season. But that existence that you speak about, Rory, for that team who, who might find frustration in being stuck, if you like, between depths of despair, but, but reaching the very greatest heights, is that enough to be designated as a team? It might be a frustrating existence, but are you a team? And indeed, can any from the outside in that whole you can't offend my family, I'm only allowed to offend my family trope that we speak about, can anybody else designate a team as being Or can you only, in a self-deprecatory way, define your own team as Because one of the things that Ollie said immediately to me when I said, this is the subject that we're talking about, he said, Barry aren't to me a team because he is a passionate supporter of Barry they should not be designated by those outside as being shit. But we're only talking and using that phrase because Matthew referred to his own team like that. And that, that uh, inspired this conversation. There's a, there's a semantic thing, isn't there? That like, you, so Berry can have a team. Berry could have a year where their team was really shit. That doesn't mean it's like a decision to support Berry. That's, they're two separate things. I think most people now designate all of the teams as shit, basically. They, they, that all opposition, the, the kind of the timber of debate generally is that everybody else is, is shit and only my team is good. But even actually deep down, I think my team is shit as well and should sign more players. That's the general way that a substantial proportion of fans, probably still a minority, seem to seem to view their team. But I think that that difference is really important that that just because your team is bad doesn't mean that it's a bad decision to support them. And equally, that badness is is 
entirely reflective of contact. So as you say, Wolves are a really good team, but Wolves have to play Bayern Munich constantly. If you put Wolves in the Champions League, Marseille are an example. Marseille are quite good in France, but have now not won or have lost 11 Champions League games in a row. Like they're just definitely not cut out for that level. Um, and that, that applies down the league. So yeah, Newcastle look bad in a Premier League sense, but aren't bad compared to York. But equally, I think that the crucial thing is that most teams have a reason to exist. And this is, this is something that I, that I think is going to become more and more relevant. The problem with Newcastle, to, to pick on Newcastle as an example, is I'm not sure what like, the purpose of Newcastle is at the moment. And I think the fans detect that as well. So if you're, if you're a Southampton fan or a Leeds fan or a, a Leicester fan or a Wolves fan, all clubs of, of kind of an equal modern relevance to Newcastle, you just about give a take. Like you, you could finish in roughly the same positions. So Newcastle might well finish like 10th or 11th this year and Leeds might finish 13th or Southampton might finish 9th. Do you know what I mean? But all those clubs have an identity and a purpose and they have something that they do that makes them feel unique and different. Whereas Newcastle feels increasingly like a club that is just kind of there and the, the ownership doesn't really have a plan and the manager is, is good at his job but is just there to kind of scramble a point here and a win there and do enough and it's all very kind of hand-to-mouth and a bit there's there's no kind of journey that's being sold there's no idea that's being sold and I think that's really important I think that there's no such thing as a team because every, even a really team will give you moments of joy I think the the most pernicious thing you can have is a team that feels a bit pointless and that's that's the problem that that, that kind of mid-rank of the Premier League have got at the moment is it, is it just about footballing comparisons or does kind of maybe geography or the state of a club's ground come into play? If, if fans of one club are, are looking at another club and saying that's a Sanetti club, it's not just purely the, the league they're playing and the type of football, the, the, whether they're winning or losing. Is it, is it to do with where they might be, say, in, in England, if you're in a bit of a backwards, maybe up north or down south, the state of your your ground, does that all come into play? Is that what maybe fans of other clubs think about the clubs that they're trying to describe as, as being a bit sonetti? So it's not just the football on the pitch, it's the actual everything to do with that club. All this ties back to how you end up supporting that team in the first place, because Rory just referenced something when talking about Berry about it not being a bad decision to support Berry. But if we're talking, and I think we are specifically about match-going fans. We've talked about the value of the, the global fan, fan base at times. But for a lot of people, the, the decision to support a club isn't one that they make. It's, it's the one that's made for them. And your, your first experiences of it is, this is all that I know. And one of the great joys in, in your life, I would suggest, if you were a football fan, is that first time, that not just the first time you walk into a football ground, but the first time you walk into your team's ground the sights the smells that experience that lasts with you it definitely lasts if it's barnsley the smell <laughs> lingers for ages stench really isn't it barnsley the only place where you find a dead pigeon in the press box ahead of uh, <laughs> ahead of the game you, you you can't replicate that and so if you take your your offspring or family member or friends to their first game that experience is what's going to hook you in an awful lot because you immediately become part of that family, that tribe, that community. It all ties in together and you become very quickly a fan of that club. It's very easy to become a supporter of a team 
it is very difficult to extricate yourself from that support. So that's why people end up following with a passion the kind of teams that others would judge to be Sinetti teams. And in many ways, it's cultish behaviour, isn't it? Because you, you become immersed in something and before you realise it's bad for your health or that a bad decision has been made either by you or on your behalf, it's too late to change it. You are in and you cannot separate yourself from that thing. And, so, and, and it, yeah, it's cultish. It's, it's like a drug. You're hooked to it. And, and that's your team. And, and that's why we were so dismissive of the, the concept in, in a previous episode about changing teams. Once you're in, I'm sorry, that's it. You sign if up you, if you support Scientology FC, there is absolutely <laughs> no way out. The thing is that Steve's right that you can't change your team, but I think you can drift away from it. But, but that's based on, on something that is different to how you begin your journey. So, for example, Steve spoke about the first, first game that you go to of your team, the team that has been most often chosen for you. Yes, I appreciate that might develop as your, as your kind of experience of the world and your, and your feelings develop. But those, those initial memories are not result dependent. You don't, you don't go to a game in your first game and necessarily form an opinion on that club based on what happens result-wise in that game because the emotional attachment that you have is is your own experience of the event of the occasion so the first time I went to see my team I was seven years old it was for Anthony Rose's seventh birthday party we had a lovely time but my team lost on that day the fact that they lost does not reduce the simple joy of the the memory that I have of that day and you were 14 as well <laughs> <laughs> it was just yesterday um there, there, there is a sense that you those early building blocks are based on emotional attachment to an experience. And whether mm. it's nostalgic in the in the days now, some three or four weeks later, you, you do appreciate that those those results in the early games doesn't matter. So whether your team is a Sonetti team or not doesn't doesn't really matter when you are forming those tightest and most strongly felt bonds because they are born of an occasion which is not result dependent. But is the so that I think that's probably right, and kids form those bonds much more strongly than adults do. I think so. If you come to football as an adult, which is possible, you're unlikely to kind of develop that same unquestioning devotion that you do as a kid. And to, I've always kind of interpreted fandom as being the story of those bonds gradually loosening as you get older, which I think is probably based on my on my dad's experience of being a, a match going Leicester fan until he moved away from Leicester when, you know, over the years, his, his kind of, his attachment to, to Leicester City and Leicester the City grew a bit, a bit kind of weaker. And then the entire season they won the title, he kept telling me that he wasn't bothered about whether they could win the title. And then my mum started worrying about hypertension because she thought he was getting too stressed about it. And he'd still be like, no, I'm not bothered at all. I don't care. And then, they, then, then he didn't talk about anything else for like three months. And then they won it. And then he didn't talk about anything else for about six months. And then all, his, all of his Christmas presents were like Leicester City books. And all of a sudden, it was like he was a four-year-old again. Did <laughs> he, he get a duvet cover for Christmas? <laughs> and um, I want the kit. I want all Brighton 11 on my kit. Um, and the, but the explanation for those bonds is, is like Hugh says, it's, it's emotional. It's not to do with the quality of player. It's to do with the experience and all that stuff. But do you think that applies, A to kids who go and watch like national league teams because they must know that that isn't the highest level available it can't feel like so when you were Hugh when you went to 
as a seven-year-old. It's going to be even more bleeping you, <laughs> this episode you, than normal. You would have been, you would have been overwhelmed by the sheer majesty and glory of. <laughs> but if you're going to like, I don't know, Geisley or Wealdstone, you can't be thinking, "My God, this is a wonderful setting." And also, B, do we think that it holds net, given that most people's first experience of a team is remote and on television? My my two, when they were a bit younger, didn't differentiate between going to a Premier League game, which they had done, and going to watch Westbidsbury West and Chalton in the ninth slash tenth tier. As far as they were concerned, they were going to a football match. So I, I think you can get hooked at any level because you don't learn the differences mm. until you're that little bit older, until you're beyond the point of being immersed in that community. You talked about Rory drifting away from it at a later stage in life. And I think that is true, but nothing replaces no, no, that no, no. previous fandom. So if anything, you've drifted away from football support entirely. You might have a, an interest in the game still and enjoy watching it whilst having drifted away from your support, but you, you, you can't replicate that thing. And I would imagine that even after a prolonged period of, of not going back to your hometown or go, go and going to see your hometown club, that if you would, were to return to it, you would, a lot of those emotions would come back and you would find that support reinvigorated because it's those, those learned experiences that, that came in a time when you were, you know, that informative stage in your life. And, I, and I've certainly seen from living in a sort of cosmopolitan area like South Manchester with people from all over the country living here, those whose children support the team their parents do, do so because their parents have taken them They've taken them home to watch their club, whatever level that is. Whereas those who have perhaps maybe bought them a kit but haven't had the opportunity to, to, to immerse them in the experience, those are the ones that are more likely have, to have become drifted towards Manchester City in general around here, United to a slightly lesser extent, or even Liverpool because it's only just down the road and a lot of their, their schoolmates support Liverpool. But, but City, I, I think around here, do good business. From, from people like me, from dads with, with kids who've got a general interest in football, who want to go to the match and they can get a ticket and take their team to the game. And that becomes their first experience of football. So a new generation of supporters will, are coming about because of that. And yes, invite, inviting families or children in and, and doing ticket deals and stuff to try and invoke that emotional response that a child will have at their first football game is, is clever marketing. But it can be, as you said, as much as you drift away from football in its entirety and that might be partly because as you develop an understanding of the, the significance of results it might be partly because they have become a Sonetti team over the course of the years and they might not have necessarily been when you were younger that can be resurrected as your dad's example proves Rory he he can even though he drifted away from the idea of being either in Leicester but also supporting Leicester he can get to that stage where that emotional connection is resurrected when something happens to designate them not as a Sonetti team, but as a good team. And that therein lies, does it not, the whole essence of supporting a Sonetti team, the hope that at some point, on some day, on an extraordinary occasion, all of that will be worth it because of what happens yeah. to a team like Leicester. No, absolutely. Or, I mean, the, and the converse example, I guess, is, is someone like Oldham. And I don't know why, when you say, why do people support teams? My initial reaction was, yeah, why does anyone support Oldham? And that seems a bit harsh. But, it is. My in-laws, please, let's have some respect. But, but 30 years ago, Oldham were, were in an FA Cup semi-final. 
and the you know in 28 years ago they were a Premier League team and I think that that's where that's where that kind of old romantic notion of of mobility through the leads is really important because yeah your team this year might be a good team next year and they might end up sort of leaping through the division so I guess if you look at teams like Plymouth who've never been who've never I don't think they've ever been in the top flight or if they have been in the top flight have not been in the top, 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 top flight for quite some time they will still harbour hopes that that next year might be the year that it all comes together. Or, the, or, or Wickham, uh, currently. Yeah, yeah, or exactly. Wickham can suddenly get... Wickham, who are a League 2 team, really, are suddenly in the Championship and are, and, and that, is as, that is as high as they need to go. Brentford getting to the Premier League. You know, the, this stuff happens. And I think that football is about hope, basically. And it's about the hope that tomorrow might be better than today. And that's, that's how most teams at whatever level operate. Leicester are an example of how it can... Of, of how, in the long term it can be worth that investment of time that my dad didn't quite make because he gave up on it when it was rubbish. Does they, when he, in the sixties, they made three FA Cup finals and they were good. They, they had great players. They had a great a visionary manager. Who's one of the kind of underestimated visionaries of English football, British football. Um, he was Scottish. And then seventies and eighties, it's all a lot tougher. They have the kind of linear years where they have a bit of hope. O'Neill. And it, that looks about like it's as good as it can get, but then, you know, in 2016, they don't win the title in the, the greatest story ever told type thing. And I guess to, to lots of other fans, that that is proof that, yeah, you might be suffering today, but if you invest in it, then you might get your rewards eventually. Not everybody will, but there's enough to keep you going. And the other thing is that, that people generally, and kids in particular, are contrary. So if you pick a team or have a team picked for you by your friends or your family or whatever, and they are rubbish for a long time, there is a good chance that will just make you more loyal because you want to defend their honour. You want you want you want to get the the return on your investment even more. And I think there's a lot of that in football support. And as well as that balance between joy and despair, there's also that balance between give and take. A lot of people expect their team to give in terms of the emotions of being a supporter, but others want to give back as well in terms of their their pride in their hometown their loyalty to their hometown in terms of following that team so a, a lot of Oldham fans I'm sure feel passionately about supporting Oldham because that's their hometown team they've been yes they've been through thick and thick and thin but they have a responsibility to show their support for that team even if things aren't going great and you know Hugh our friend Steve who supports Colchester He's lived all over the country, lives in Manchester like we do now. But he comes alive when talking about Colchester United. I, mean, I can't think of anything. I mean, it, that, that seems like a, a quintessentially difficult team to support. There's Pointless so endeavour. <laughs> I, I didn't want to insult him, so thank you for doing that on my behalf, Rory. But <laughs> it, it, not, it, not only does he come alive when he talks about Colchester, but it's a connection with his hometown and with his family. And it's something that him and his dad can, can talk about a couple of times a week on the phone. And that that's something that's massively un underestimated, I think. And I, I did a story on Berry and went back to the people who were basically kind of keeping the ghost of the club alive. And what they said is that for a lot of those places, places like Colchester and Berry and South End and, and you know, these, these sort of smaller towns, they don't really enter the national consciousness except for at 4.48 p.m. on a Saturday when the football stores get read out. Yeah. That, is the, that is the only time that people in the country, a substantial yeah. number of people in the country, the, the numbers of those people are extraordinary, extraordinary. So Soccer Saturday, the excellent BT Sports Straw and final straw between them get millions of viewers there are millions of people watching that and they will 
they will have Colchester and Bury and Oldham and Rochdale and all those places read out. And to people from those towns, it's a really important kind of avatar for the, the existence of that yeah. place. And that's something we, that if you support a big city team or even a team like, like my team, Harrod at Town, who, who are from a place that has, has its, own railway. Of, its own type of spring water, like you, you don't need you don't need that that validation. But I think if you're from a, from a, from a town that, that just isn't mentioned at all, unless there's like a murder, then then it's it's your biggest kind of badge of civic honour. And I think that's really important. So I think to, to people like Steve, not you, Steve, other Steve, the bond with Colchester probably gets stronger as you move away because it is it's a way of showing your loyalty to the place that you're from. And that's really important. It also gets stronger through adversity as well. So the fact that we're talking about all these Sinetti teams and why you would support a Sinetti team is almost like you're more likely to support that team fervently because you are having to defend that team against those who automatically assume that they are a Sinetti team. Yeah. And therefore, in doing that, your strong, uh, your, uh, the strength of your bond becomes greater. And you, you'll, find, you'll find the players, you know, you'll take great pride in the players who came through, you know, who had a loan spell at Colchester and made it to the England team or who... You'll, you'll remember the day that Jamie Vardy scored three against you because, and you were there at Layer Road or wherever Colchester play now. Um, the, he's got a Colchester Community Stadium, but Le Layer Road was genuinely a <laughs> ground, like it was a, just a complete <laughs> heap. In fact, um, it's Stadium Haribo, isn't it? No, a Stadium Haribo. Haribo. Was it a, <laughs> <Stadium> <laughs> <Haribo>. <laughs> was it a <laughs> house? <laughs> the um, all right, all right, okay. yeah, <laughs> that was the, a rabbit hole. You, and it's because it's because those teams those teams need your support. Like Man United don't need your individual support; they've got enough support. Whereas so Colchester feel, probably do. Yeah, you, you feel, feel more of a bond. You and you also feel of value because yes. you, the, the 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 ability of Manchester United to dilute a certain amount of support over their six hundred million followers all around the world, but Colchester that dilution doesn't happen because there's only a massively small percentage of that. So you all feel like you're contributing a little bit more because you are playing more of a role because you are more significant a ratio of that support. And, and Steve constantly refers to them as the super use. <laughs> they are the super use. Where does the super bit come from? It, 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 you know, it, that their halcyon days were an FA Cup third round tie. Yet the, the, the super sticks with the use the whole time. Yeah, but think about how many teams seen we're the greatest team the world has ever known, yeah, exactly. even though That's they are manifestly not. Do you know what I mean? Like, you get the, you get, I don't know, like, it's, I mean, it's even quite good. Like the Middlesbrough fans singing at quite a big club. You think, well, you're, you're, you're very much not Brazil 1970 or the Guardiola era Barcelona. So this is incorrect. Stop singing it. <laughs> I, the, the, I like the idea of policing, fact checking every single the, chant. Don't get me started on fact checking chants. But the, the, there's so many clubs of that ilk who are sort of pottering along in like League One, League Two, the National League, all that. Who don't? Who you look at from the outside and you think that must be a, that must be a tough life supporting them, but they've all got a claim to fame. They've all got you know a great player who played for them. They've all got some re some weird records that they hold, some some weird place in history, and their fans take huge. Pr you find pride where you can find it, I think, or you take pride where you can find it. So you will get York fans who will tell you that that actually Bootham Crescent, Kit Kat Crescent was the place where this happened or it had the highest ever attendance at a game during a bombing raid or something. Or where and Andy Hinchcliffe made his competitive debut for Manchester City. Something like that. Exactly. Something like that. That's claim to fame, isn't it, really? And look where he went on to, to, to achieve. Incredible. 
Although when things. when you return to Bootham Crescent later as an Everton player, um, we, do we get beat? Yeah, Graham Murty, you remember that? Oh yeah. No, oh, no, no you don't remember that. that. I've forgotten that. No, no. But, and, and also, everybody remembers that John Parkin had some of his greatest times uh, as a York City player. Um, Chinch, I just want to finish because time's against us. Um, with the question that is difficult for you to answer because you played at the highest level. Very highest. Throughout your career. But did you get a sense that, that that bond that we've spoken about, about fans increasing the strength of that bond because of adversity, is there a sense that players can tap into that as well and understand that, yeah, they're playing for a club that, that has a reputation for being a bit rubbish. So perhaps they think it would, it would help me and my personal sense of self-esteem if I was able to propel this club to greater things than perhaps their fans traditionally have expected yeah but I was never able to sadly help any of the teams that I play for I don't think I propelled anybody or anything anywhere you know I just I just played my part a very low level part but yeah the clubs that I play for were very different clubs had different fan bases different ideals that had different histories as I say we're in different parts of the country had different in terms of their their grounds and their facilities were, were very different as well so yeah, I think players, of course you do. You want to improve. Well, there's something wrong with you. If you go to a club and you don't want to improve their situation and feel that you can play a part in in, in developing that team, either keeping them up or, or winning a trophy. Yeah, of course, that's what... The, what play, you have to understand, I think it's important for players to understand the club that they're playing for because clearly they are all not the same. You're playing the same game, but you're not playing for the same team and you're not playing in front of the same set of fans. And the demands do change. And it is very important to try and understand why fans of a certain club are coming to watch that club at, at the point that you're playing for them. And if there's ever a sense that you're not quite sure about the designation of your club and whether it does indeed uh, fit the moniker of shit, all you need to do to absolutely know beyond all reasonable doubt is to sign Frankie Sinetti. Uh, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori Walker's soccer <laughs> story. This is an Andy Hinchcliffe tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel worthy details removed. Well, I did have a, it was kind of just a little family story about how Primrose was mightily confused about my, one of the, probably, yes, the, the, the highlights of my playing career. I don't know whether you, this is a nice little story, but again, it is getting tricky for me to tell these mammoth, hilarious stories that I've done in the past. Look, Andy, let me step in. As, as your official biographer, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've now managed to, to, to get on top of all of the major key moments in your career. Can you cast your mind back? 29 years ago yesterday. I can't well, cast you my might mind back to... 29 minutes. 29 years ago. Exactly. 1991? 1991, yes. 90, yeah. Right. And what am I, what am what, I what might, what might you have been doing that day? What, what, a standout moment in your career, a sort of, oh, a moment that probably in 30 seconds encapsulated what you were all about as a player. Uh, well, every game I played, I broke opposition hearts. So, if, if, you um, could atta- if you could attach a sound effect to this moment, it would yeah. be ping. I hadn't just received an email, had I? No, no. <laughs> well, um, figured out what you're going to have tonight from the Chinese ping. Anyway. Well, the only the only thing pingish about my football was crossfield passes. That's about the only thing I can. Ooh. I used to Ooh. ping a pass. He's onto that, it. Am I? Am I? He's am I getting it. warmer? Roll the VT. Right, so this is Everton against somebody in strike. What a pass! <laughs> is that is that Stumpy Cotty scoring? 
And that's Clive Tilsley commentating. That was that me? You sure that was me? Because this it was a ca- hell of it was a raking crossfield pass. Was that me? Seriously? This came up on one of those oldie timey Twitter feeds, football from back before the Premier League was invented. That is yeah. Andy Hinchcliffe on a sixpence. At least 60 yards over the top, perfectly yeah. into the path of Tony Cotty. First yeah. time. No, I think he, he takes a touch. No, I don't take a touch. It's oh, no, no, Ginch doesn't take a touch. First, yeah. Cotty takes three, actually, slightly <laughs> miscontrols it. So he needs to show it off, isn't he? Why take three when he can do it in one? Who, who, is, the, who is the team? Was it, Notts, was it Notts County? Is it a stripe? Is it Grimsby or somebody? Clearly, it's going to be Juventus, maybe? Because <laughs> that pass was worthy of a top class match so it has to be Everton against somebody nowhere near a Sonetti team but I, I must have told the story when Howard Kendall used to love the crossfield pass to when I was at Man City David White or when I was at Everton Kinchelski so as long as you've got a really fast right winger that pass is is great you switch your play you get him in behind a fullback I remember Howard Kendall saying to me I'd done it a couple of times in training and he said he came over and said do not play that ball again because it's too risky and if you if you miss hit it under hit it you're going to give the ball away right in the middle of the pitch and we're in big trouble and I just said, but I don't get them wrong. And I, I didn't get, I can't remember getting too many of that pass wrong because I used to give it a right good wallop. So even if you get it wrong, the central midfielder might intercept, but he's probably going to have his head taken off because it'll be like a howitzer because you have to give a crossfield pass a bit of oomph, don't you? But I remember, and I did it again. I purposely did another crossfield pass and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just told you, it's like a soccer story in itself, isn't it? He said, don't do that again. So what did I do? Did it again. But then I didn't play for five matches afterwards, so I should really have listened and played the ball, just stroked into my central midfielder. If Kevin De Bruyne had done that, uh, it would be replayed and replayed and replayed over and over again. It's just that you're not ginger or Belgian, so that's uh, where you're lacking all that, all that Steve, Has Steve found w- which team it was? Steve, are we any idea? No, no, I've not bothered. Does it matter? It's just like, it's, it's like I know what I'm doing. It's like I've, I was born to play football. Like you've tried to convince us of with your free kicks and corners in the past, Chinch, that if you make, if you make contact perfectly, it mm. doesn't matter what the opposition do. In this case, it doesn't matter who the opposition well, I, I didn't, I clearly have not remembered because I probably played so many of those pinpoint crossfield passes that, it, again, they just all become a blur. But I, I cannot, when I watched that, I, I didn't know who that was. And I thought, wait a minute. Got a big fat bottom. That's got to be me. I love, some of the comments on, on, on the video, so this is not, not on our Twitter feed, but some of the comments are, he had some left peg. His free kicks were glorious. Someone else says, saw Hinchy do that a lot. <laughs> Thank you. And then others channeling his inner Paul Bracewell. And this is my, <laughs> my favourite. The comment simply is, Goodison Park surface was mint in those days. So it was nothing to do with you. It was the groundsman. It was the groundsman what delivered the pass. Uh, we have uh, retweeted it. So it is on our Twitter, uh, Twitter feed if you search for it. It is genuinely glorious. And I and I'm, I mock about Kevin De Bruyne. It, it, it is absolutely exquisite. And, and it's intentional. Like, Can I just, it, I didn't yeah. miss it. It's intentional, absolutely. people. Even though I've just seen it for the first time in 29 years. <laughs> I did mean to do that. I didn't just completely miss hit it. And do you know what? Our audience has let us down because when, when I retweeted it, I, I added a poll to say uncultured long ball merchant or left foot that can open a can of beans. <laughs> and incredibly, despite the amount of abuse you get from us on this podcast, 72% of people have voted can opening left oh, foot. Ah, lovely stuff. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review. So we humbly ask you to continue to provide room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You'll be- tell you my Primrose story.
it's only a quick she was fascinated by the loft and that's where I keep all my footballing memorabilia um so I took her up into the loft and she was fascinated stuff everywhere and she she sees these I've got some kind of pictures leaning up against the wall so she asked me what these are so I moved them out of the way and then there's my England debut shirt in a frame she looks clearly confused by this and I said Prim what's what's the matter and she said granddad why have you put your dressing gown behind glass (laughs) and I said that's not a, that's not a dressing gown. It's got a number on it, and you could see her. She's mad. And I said, "This is this is an international foot." She had no understanding of football, the levels of football, the footballing pyramid, the international game. She's turned three. She sort of have a basic understandings of the mechanics and history of football, you would think. But she thought it was I'd framed my dressing gown and put it in the loft. So I had to put her right to take her down. She wasn't interested. Took her downstairs and said, right, I'm going to show you a few clips of Grandad playing football. But as soon as Peppa Pig came on, it was game over. You need to take her to a football ground and clearly all those emotional uh, emotional bonds will be Oh, where should I, that's a good one. Where shall I take her for her first experience of, this is a really good question. Where should I take an impressionable three-year-old child? Well, at the moment, very few choices. Rory, what, know, is, but- your, uh, what is your um, percentage of your battery? My battery percentage is forty-one percent, and my my internet internet connection has been deeply unstable for the last ten minutes, which is why I'm not, which is why I've not said anything. So basically, a full pod takes fifty percent of a yes, Macintosh my battery computer. Life. So sorry exactly. for ruining that. We also drain Rory by fifty percent during the course of an average <laughs> podcast. So where am I going to take her? The Step Places Stadium in Chiltonville for West Didsbury and Chilton. Stockport, Harrogate Town. I can't see him investing in Harrogate Town, can you? That's an awful lot of snacks he's got to prepare for a trip to Harrogate Town. That's true, yeah. yeah. Stockport's your closest team, isn't it? Uh, you say team. Yeah, they're the f- yeah, closest Stockport club that Mac- plays football. Stockport or Macclesfield? The new Macclesfield FC. With Robbie Savage as sporting director, is that? With Robbie that? Savage as sporting director. I'm definitely not taking them there.